0: book four chapter one of on the ends of good and evil by cicero translated by harris rackham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards with these words he concluded a most faithful and lucid exposition cato said i considering the wide range of your subject and its obscurity clearly I must either give up all idea of replying, or must take time to think it over. It is no easy task to get a thorough grasp of a system so elaborate, even if erroneous, for on that point I do not yet venture to speak, but at all events so highly finished, both in its first principles and in their working out. You don't say so, replied Cato. Do you suppose I am going to allow our suit to be adjourned, when I see you under this new law replying for the defense on the same day as your opponent concludes for the prosecution and keeping your speech within a three hours limit, footnote passed by pompey fifty two b c to limit the concluding speeches in lawsuits to two hours for the prosecution and three for the defense, both to be delivered on the same day. End footnote. Though you will find your present case as shaky as any of those which you now and then succeed in pulling off. So tackle this one like the rest, particularly as the subject is familiar. Others have handled it before, and so have you repeatedly, so that you can hardly be gravelled for lack of matter. I protest, I exclaimed. I am not by way of challenging the Stoics lightly. Not that I agree with them entirely, but modesty restrains me there is so much in their doctrines that i can hardly understand i admit he said that some parts are obscure but the stoics do not affect an obscure style on purpose the obscurity is inherent in the subjects themselves how is it then i replied that when the same subjects are discussed by the peripatetics every word is intelligible the same subjects he cried Have I not said enough to show that the disagreement between the Stoics and the Peripatetics is not a matter of words, but concerns the entire substance of their whole system? Oh, well, Cato, I rejoined, if you can prove that, you are welcome to claim me as a wholehearted convert. I did think, said he, that I had said enough. So let us take this question first, if you like, or if you prefer another topic, we will take this later on. Nay, said I as to that matter i shall use my own discretion unless this is an unfair stipulation and deal with each subject as it comes up have it your way he replied my plan would have been more suitable but it is fair to let a man choose for himself chapter two my view then cato i proceeded is this that those old disciples of plato spelsippus aristotle and xenocrates and afterwards their pupils polema and theophrastus had developed a body of doctrine that left nothing to be desired either in fulness or finish so that zeno on becoming the pupil of polema had no reason for differing either from his master himself or from his master's predecessors the outline of their theory was as follows but i should be glad if you would call attention to any point you may desire to correct without waiting for me to deal with the whole of your discourse for i think i shall have to place their entire system in conflict with the whole of yours well these philosophers observed one that we are so constituted as to have a natural aptitude for the recognized and standard virtues in general i mean justice temperance and the others of that class all of which resemble the rest of the arts and differ only by excelling them in the material with which they work and in their treatment of it they observed moreover that we pursue these virtues with a more lofty enthusiasm than we do the arts and two that we possess an implanted or rather an innate appetite for knowledge and three that we are naturally disposed towards social life with our fellow-men and towards fellowship and community with the human race and that these instincts are displayed most clearly in the most highly endowed natures accordingly they divided philosophy into three departments a division that was retained as we notice by zeno one of these departments is the science that is held to give rules for the formation of moral character this part which is the foundation of our present discussion i defer for i shall consider later the question what is the end of goods? For the present I only say that the topic of what I think may fitly be entitled civic science, the adjective in Greek is politikos, was handled with authority and fulness by the early peripatetics and academics, who agreed in substance, though they differed in terminology. Chapter 3. What a vast amount they have written on politics and on jurisprudence! many precepts of oratory they have left us in their treatises and how many examples in their discourses in the first place even the topics that required close reasoning they handled in a neat and polished manner employing now definition now division as indeed your school does also but your style is rather out at elbows while theirs is noticeably elegant then in themes demanding ornate and dignified treatment how imposing how brilliant is their diction on justice temperance courage friendship on the conduct of life the pursuit of wisdom the career of the statesman no hair-splitting like that of the stoics no bare skeleton of argument but the loftier passages studiously ornate and the minor topics studiously plain and clear as a result think of their consolations their exhortations even their warnings and counsels addressed to men of the highest eminence in fact their rhetorical exercises were twofold like the nature of the subjects themselves for every question for debate can be argued either on the general issue ignoring the persons or circumstances involved or these also being taken into consideration on a point of fact or of law or of nomenclature They therefore practiced themselves in both kinds, and this training produced their remarkable fluency in each class of discussion. This whole field Zeno and his successors were either unable or unwilling to cover. At all events they left it untouched. Cleanthes, it is true, wrote a treatise on rhetoric, and Chrysippus wrote one too. But what are they like? why they furnish a complete manual for any one whose ambition is to hold his tongue you can judge then of their style coining new words discarding those approved by use but you will say think how vast are the themes that they essay for example that this entire universe is our own town you see the magnitude of a stoic's task to convince an inhabitant of kirkei that the whole vast world is his own borough if so he must rouse his audience to enthusiasm what a stoic rouse enthusiasm he is much more likely to extinguish any enthusiasm the student may have had to begin with even those brief maxims that you propounded that the wise man alone is king dictator millionaire neatly rounded off no doubt as you put them of course for you learnt them from professors of rhetoric but how bald are those very maxims on the lips of the stoics when they talk about the potency of virtue virtue which they rate so highly that it can of itself they say confer happiness their meagre little syllogisms are mere pinpricks. even if they convince the intellect they cannot convert the heart and the hearer goes away no better than he came what they say is possibly true and certainly important but the way in which they say it is wrong it is far too niggling chapter four next come logic and natural science for the problem of ethics as i said we shall notice later concentrating the whole force of the discussion upon its solution in these two departments then there was nothing that zeno need have desired to alter since all was in a most satisfactory state and that in both departments for in the subject of logic what had the ancients left undealt with they defined a multitude of terms, and left treatises on definition. Of the kindred art of the division of a thing into its parts, they give practical examples, and lay down rules for the process, and the same with the law of contradictories, from which they arrived at genera and species. Then, in deductive reasoning, they start with what they term self-evident propositions. From these, the argument proceeds by rule, And finally, the conclusion gives the inference valid in the particular case. Again, how many different forms of deduction they distinguish, and how widely these differ from sophistical syllogisms. Think how earnestly they reiterate the warning, that we must not expect to find truth in sensation unaided by reason, nor in reason without sensation, and that we are not to divorce the one from the other was it not they who first laid down the rules that form the stock in trade of professors of logic to-day? Logic, no doubt, was very fully worked out by Chrysippus, but much less was done in it by Zeno than by the older schools, and in some parts of the subject his work was no improvement on that of his predecessors, while other parts he neglected altogether. Of the two sciences, which between them cover the whole field of reasoning and of oratory, one the science of topics and the other that of logic the latter has been handled by both stoics and peripatetics but the former though excellently taught by the peripatetics has not been touched by the stoics at all of topics the store chambers in which arguments are arranged ready for use your school had not the faintest notion whereas their predecessors propounded a regular technique and method this science of topics saves one from always having to drone out the same stock arguments on the same subjects without ever departing from one's notes. For a man who knows under what general heading each argument comes, and how to lay his hand on it, will always be able to unearth any particular argument, however far out of sight it lies, and will never lose his self possession in debate. The fact is that although some men of genius attain to eloquence without a system, Nevertheless, science is a safer guide than nature. A poetic outpouring of language is one thing. The systematic and scientific marshalling of one's matter is another. CHAPTER five. Much the same may be said about natural philosophy, which is pursued both by the peripatetics and by your school, and that, not merely for the two objects, recognized by Epicurus, of banishing superstition and the fear of death besides these benefits the study of the heavenly phenomena bestows a power of self-control that arises from the perception of the consummate restraint and order that obtain even among the gods also loftiness of mind is inspired by contemplating the creations and actions of the gods and justice by realizing the will design and purpose of the supreme lord and ruler to whose nature we are told by philosophers that the true reason and supreme law are conformed the study of natural philosophy also affords the inexhaustible pleasure of acquiring knowledge the sole pursuit which can afford an honourable and elevated occupation for the hours of leisure left when business has been finished now in the whole of this branch of philosophy on most of the important points the stoics followed the peripatetics maintaining the existence of the gods and the creation of the world out of the four elements then coming to the very difficult question whether we are to believe in the existence of a fifth substance as the source of reason and intellect and bound up with this the further question of the nature of the soul zeno declared this substance to be fire next as to some details but only a few he diverged from his predecessors but on the main question he agreed that the universe as a whole and its chief parts are governed by a divine mind and substance in point of fulness however and fertility of treatment we shall find the stoics meagre whereas the peripatetics are copious in the extreme what stores of facts they discovered and collected about the classification reproduction morphology and biology of animals of every kind and again about plants. How copious and wide in range their explanations of the causes and demonstrations of the mode of different natural phenomena. And all these stores supply them with numerous and conclusive arguments to explain the nature of each particular thing. So far then, as far as I at least can understand the case, there appears to have been no reason for the change of name that zeno was not prepared to follow the peripatetics in every detail did not alter the fact that he had sprung from them for my own part i consider epicurus also at all events in natural philosophy simply a pupil of democritus he makes a few modifications or indeed a good many but on most points and unquestionably the most important he merely echoes his master your leaders do the same yet neglect to acknowledge their full debt to the original discoverers chapter six but leaving this let us now if you please turn to ethics on the subject of the chief good which is the keystone of philosophy what precise contribution did zeno make to justify his quarrelling with his parents the originators of the doctrine under this head you cato gave a careful exposition of the stoics conception of this and of goods and of the meaning they attach to the term still i also will restate it to enable us to perceive if we can what element of novelty was introduced by zeno preceding thinkers and among them most explicitly polema had explained the chief good as being to live in accordance with nature this formula receives from the stoics three interpretations the first runs thus to live in the light of a knowledge of the natural sequence of causation this conception of the end they declare to be identical with Zeno's, being an explanation of your phrase to live in agreement with nature their second interpretation is that it means the same as to live in the performance of all or most of one's intermediate duties the chief good as thus expounded, is not the same as that of the preceding interpretation. That is, right action, katarthama was your term, and can be achieved only by the wise man. But this belongs to duty merely inchoate, so to speak, and not perfect, which may sometimes be attained by the foolish. Again, the third interpretation of the formula is, to live in the enjoyment of all, or of the greatest of those things which are in accordance with nature this does not depend solely on our own conduct for it involves two factors first a mode of life enjoying virtue secondly a supply of the things which are in accordance with nature but which are not within our control but the chief good as understood in the third and last interpretation and life passed on the basis of the chief good being inseparably coupled with virtue lie within the reach of the wise man alone and this is the account of the end of goods as we read in the writings of the stoics themselves which was given by xenocrates and aristotle they therefore describe the primary constitution of nature which was your starting-point also more or less in the following terms chapter seven every natural organism aims at being its own preserver so as to secure its safety, and also its preservation, true to its specific type. With this object, they declare, man, called in the aid of the arts, also to assist nature. And chief among the arts is counted the art of living, which aims at guarding the gifts that nature has bestowed, and at obtaining those that are lacking. They further divided the nature of man into soul and body each of these parts they pronounced to be desirable for its own sake and consequently they said that the virtues also of each were desirable for their own sakes at the same time they extolled the soul as infinitely surpassing the body in glory and accordingly placed the virtues also of the mind above the goods of the body but they held that wisdom is the guardian and protectress of the whole man as being the comrade and helper of nature And so they said that the function of wisdom, as protecting a being that consisted of a mind and a body, was to assist and preserve him in respect of both. After thus laying the first broad foundations of the theory, they went on to work it out in greater detail. The goods of the body, they held, required no particular explanation, but the goods of the soul they investigated with more elaboration, finding in the first place that in them lay the germs of justice and they were the first of any philosophers to teach that the love of parents for their offspring is a provision of nature and that nature so they pointed out has ordained the union of men and women in marriage which is prior in order of time and is the root of all the family affections starting from these first principles they traced out the origin and growth of all the virtues from the same source was developed loftiness of mind which could render us proof against the assaults of fortune because the things that matter were under the control of the wise man whereas to the vicissitudes and blows of fortune a life directed by the precepts of the old philosophers could easily rise superior again upon the foundations given by nature was erected a spacious structure of excellences partly based on the contemplation of the secrets of nature since the mind possessed an innate love of knowledge whence also resulted the passion for argument and for discussion and also since man is the only animal endowed with a sense of modesty and shame with a desire for intercourse and society with his fellows and with a scrupulous care in all his words and actions to avoid any conduct that is not honourable and seemly from these beginnings or germs as i called them before of nature's bestowal were developed temperance self-control justice and moral virtue generally in full flower and perfection chapter eight there cato i said is an outline of the philosophers of whom i am speaking having put it before you i should be glad to learn what reason zeno had for seceding from this old established system which precisely of these doctrines did he think unsatisfactory the doctrine that every organism instinctively seeks its own preservation or that every animal has an affection for itself prompting it to desire its own continuance safe and unimpaired in its specific type or that since the end of every art is some special natural requirement the same must be affirmed as regards the art of life as a whole or that as we consist of soul and body these and also the virtues of these are desirable for their own sakes or again did he take exception to the ascription of such preeminence to the virtues of the soul or with what they say about prudence and knowledge about the sense of human fellowship or about temperance self-control magnanimity and moral virtue in general no the stoics will admit that all of these doctrines are admirable and that zeno's reason for secession did not lie here as i understand They will accuse the ancients of certain grave errors in other matters, which that ardent seeker after truth found himself quite unable to tolerate. What, he asked, could have been more insufferably foolish and perverse than to take good health, freedom from all pain, or soundness of eyesight and of the other senses, and class them as goods, instead of saying that there was nothing whatever to choose between these things and their opposites according to him, all these things which the ancients called good, were not good, but preferred. And so also, with bodily excellences, it was foolish of the ancients to call them desirable for their own sakes. They were not desirable, but worth adopting. And in short, speaking generally, a life bountifully supplied with all the other things in accordance with nature, in addition to virtue, was not more desirable, but only more worth adopting than a life of virtue and virtue alone. And although virtue of itself can render life as happy as it is possible for it to be, yet there are some things that wise men lack at the very moment of supreme happiness, and accordingly they do their best to protect themselves from pain, disease, and infirmity. Chapter 9. What Acuteness of Intellect! What a satisfactory reason for the creation of a new philosophy but proceed further for we now come to the doctrine of which you gave such a masterly summary that all men's folly injustice and other vices are alike and all sins are equal and that those who by nature and training have made considerable progress towards virtue unless they have actually attained to it are utterly miserable and there is nothing whatever to choose between their existence and that of the wickedest of mankind so that the great and famous plato supposing he was not a wise man lived a no better and no happier life than any unprincipled scoundrel and this if you please is your revised and corrected version of the old philosophy a version that could not possibly be produced in civic life in the law courts in the senate For who could tolerate such a way of speaking in one who claimed to be an authority on wise and moral conduct? Who would allow him to alter the names of things, and, while really holding the same opinions as everybody else, to impose names on things to which he attaches the same meanings as other people, just altering the terms while leaving the ideas themselves untouched? Could an advocate wind up his defence of a client by declaring that exile and confiscation of property are not evils, that they are to be rejected but not to be shunned, that it is not a judge's duty to show mercy, or supposing him to be addressing a meeting of the people? Hannibal is at the gates and has flung a javelin over the city walls. Could he say that captivity, enslavement, death, loss of country are no evils could the senate decreeing a triumph to africanus use the formula whereas by reason of his valour or good fortune if no one but the wise man can truly be said to possess either valour or good fortune what sort of a philosophy then is this which speaks the ordinary language in public but in its treatises employs an idiom of its own and that, though the doctrines which the Stoics express in their own peculiar terms contain no actual novelty, the ideas remain the same, though clothed in another dress. Why, what difference does it make, whether you call wealth, power, health, goods, or things preferred, when he who calls them goods assigns no more value to them than you who style exactly the same things preferred? this is why so eminent and high-minded an authority as panitius a worthy member of the famous circle of scipio and lilius in his epistle to quintus tubero on the endurance of pain has nowhere made what ought to have been his most effective point if it could be shown to be true namely that pain is not an evil instead he defines its nature and properties estimates the degree of its divergence from nature and lastly prescribes the method by which it is to be endured so that by his vote seeing that he was a stoic your terminological fatuities seem to me to stand condemned chapter ten, but i want to come to closer quarters Cato, with the actual system as you stated it so let us press the matter home and compare the doctrines you have just enunciated with those which i think superior to yours let us then take for granted the tenets that you hold in common with the ancients but discuss if you are willing those about which there is dispute oh said he i am quite willing for the debate to go deeper to be pressed home as you phrase it the arguments you have so far put forward are of the popular order but i look to you to give me something more out of the common what do you look to me said i but all the same i will do my best and if i am short of matter i shall not shrink from the arguments you are pleased to call popular but let it be granted to begin with that we have an affection for ourselves and that the earliest impulse bestowed upon us by nature is a desire for self-preservation on this we are agreed and the implication is that we must study what we ourselves are in order to keep ourselves true to our proper character we are then human beings consisting of soul and body and these of a certain kind these we are bound to esteem as our earliest natural instinct demands and out of these we must construct our end our chief and ultimate good and if our premises are correct this end must be pronounced to consist in the attainment of the largest number of the most important of the things in accordance with nature this then was the conception of the end that they upheld the supreme good they believed to be the thing which i have described at some length but which they more briefly expressed by the formula life according to nature chapter eleven now then let us call upon your leaders Or better upon yourself for who is more qualified to speak for your school to explain this how in the world do you contrive starting from the same first principles to reach the conclusion that the chief good is morality of life for that is equivalent to your life in agreement with virtue or life in harmony with nature by what means or at what point did you suddenly discard the body and all those things which are in accordance with nature but out of our control and lastly duty itself my question then is how comes it that so many things that nature strongly recommends have been suddenly abandoned by wisdom even if we were not seeking the chief good of man but of some living creature that consisted solely of a mind let us allow ourselves to imagine such a creature in order to facilitate our discovery of the truth even so that mind would not accept this end of yours. For such a being would ask for health and freedom from pain, and would also desire its own preservation and security for the goods just specified. And it would set up as its end to live according to nature, which means, as I said, to possess either all or most and the most important of the things which are in accordance with nature. In fact, you may construct a living creature of any sort you like but even if it be devoid of a body like our imaginary being nevertheless its mind will be bound to possess certain attributes analogous to those of the body and consequently it will be impossible to set up for it an end of goods on any other lines than those which i have laid down chrysippus on the other hand in his survey of the different species of living things states that in some the body is the principal part, in others the mind, while there are some that are equally in doubt in respect of either. And then he proceeds to discuss what constitutes the ultimate good proper to each species. Man he has placed under that species in which the mind is principal, and yet he so defines man's end as to make it appear not that he is principally minded, but that he consists of nothing else. CHAPTER Twelve. But the only case in which it would be correct to place the chief good in virtue alone is if there existed a creature consisting solely of pure intellect, with the further proviso that this intellect were devoid of any attribute that is in accordance with nature, such as health. But it is impossible even to imagine a self-consistent picture of what such a creature would be like if on the contrary they urge that certain things are so extremely small that they are eclipsed and lost sight of altogether we too admit this epicurus also says the same of pleasure that the smallest pleasures are often eclipsed and disappear but things so important permanent and numerous as the bodily advantages in question are not in this category on the one hand therefore With things so small as to be eclipsed from view we are often bound to admit that it makes no difference to us whether we have them or not just as to take your illustration it makes no difference if you light a lamp in the sunshine or add sixpence to the wealth of croesus while on the other hand with things which are not so completely eclipsed it may nevertheless be the case that the precise difference they make is not very great thus if a man who has lived ten years enjoyably were given an additional month of equally enjoyable life the addition to his enjoyment being of some value would be a good thing but yet the refusal of the addition does not forthwith annihilate his happiness now bodily goods resemble rather the latter sort of things for they contribute something worth taking trouble to obtain so that i feel the stoics must sometimes be joking on this point when they say that if to the life of virtue be added an oil flask or a flesh brush the wise man will choose the life so augmented by preference but yet will not on that account be any happier pray does this illustration really hold good is it not rather to be dismissed with a laugh than seriously refuted who does not richly deserve to be laughed at if he troubles about having or not having an oil flask but rid a man of bodily deformity or agonies of pain and you earn his deepest gratitude and if the wise man is ordered by a tyrant to go to the rack he would not wear the same look as if he had lost his oil flask he would feel that he had a severe and searching ordeal before him and seeing that he was about to encounter the supreme antagonist pain he would summon up all his principles of courage and endurance to fortify him against that severe and searching struggle aforesaid. Again, the question is not whether such and such a good is so trifling as to be eclipsed or lost altogether, but whether it is of such a sort as to contribute to the sum total. In the life of pleasure, of which we spoke, one pleasure is lost to sight among the many. But all the same, small as it is, it is a part of the life that is based upon pleasure a halfpenny is lost to sight amidst the riches of croesus still it forms part of those riches hence the circumstances according to nature as we call them may be unnoticed in a life of happiness only you must allow that they are parts of that happiness chapter thirteen yet if as you and we are bound to agree there does exist a certain natural instinct to desire the things in accordance with nature the right procedure is to add together all these things in one definite total. This point established, it will then be open to us to investigate at our leisure your questions about the importance of the separate items, and the value of their respective contributions to happiness, and about that eclipse, as you call it, of the things so small as to be almost or quite imperceptible. Then what of a point on which no disagreement exists? I mean this, no one will dispute that the supreme and final end, the thing ultimately desirable, is analogous for all natural species alike. For love of self is inherent in every species, since what species exists that ever deserts itself, or any part of itself, or any habit or faculty of any such part, or any of the things in accordance with nature, either in motion or at rest what species ever forgot its own original constitution? Assuredly, there is not one that does not retain its own proper faculty from start to finish. How, then, came it about that, of all the existing species, mankind alone should abandon man's nature, forget the body, and find its chief good not in the whole man, but in a part of man? How, moreover, is the axiom to be retained admitted as it is even by the Stoics, and accepted universally, that the end, which is the subject of our inquiry, is analogous for all species. For the analogy to hold, every other species also would have to find its end in that part of the organism, which in that particular species is the highest part, since that, as we have seen, is how the Stoics conceive the end of man why then do you hesitate to alter your conception of the primary instincts to correspond instead of saying that every animal from the moment of its birth is devoted to love of itself and engrossed in preserving itself why do you not rather say that every animal is devoted to the best part of itself and engrossed in protecting that alone and that every other species is solely engaged in preserving the part that is respectively best in each But in what sense is one part the best if nothing beside it is good at all? While if on the contrary other things also are desirable, why does not the supremely desirable thing consist in the attainment of all, or of the greatest possible number, and the most important of these things? A Phidias can start to make a statue from the beginning and carry it to completion, or he can take one rough-hewn by someone else and finish that. The latter case typifies the work of wisdom. She did not create man herself, but took him over in the rough from nature. Her business is to finish the statue that nature began, keeping her eyes on nature meanwhile. What sort of thing, then, is man as rough-hewn by nature? And what is the function and the task of wisdom? What is it that needs to be consummated by her finishing touch? If it is a creature consisting solely of a certain operation of the intellect, that is, reason, its highest good must be activity in accordance with virtue, since virtue is reason's consummation. If it is nothing but a body, the chief things will be health, freedom from pain, beauty and the rest. Chapter 14. But as a matter of fact the creature whose chief good we are seeking is man, surely then our course is to inquire what nature's handiwork has been in man the whole man all are agreed that the duty and function of wisdom is entirely centred in the work of perfecting man but then some thinkers for you must not imagine that i am tilting at the stoics only produce theories which place the chief good in the class of things entirely outside our control as though they were discussing some creature devoid of a mind while others, on the contrary, ignore everything but mind, just as if man had no body, and that, though even the mind is not an empty, impalpable something, a conception to me unintelligible, but in some sort corporeal, and therefore even the mind is not satisfied with virtue alone, but desires freedom from pain. In fact, with each school alike, it is just as if they should ignore the left side of their bodies, and protect the right, or in the mind, like Aurelis, recognize cognition, but leave the practical faculty out of account. They pick and choose, pass over a great deal, and fasten on a single aspect, so that all their systems are one-sided. The full and perfect philosophy was that which, investigating the chief good of man, left no part either of his mind or body uncared for. Whereas your friends, Cato, on the strength of the fact, which we all admit, that virtue is man's highest and supreme excellence and that the wise man is the perfect and consummate type of humanity try to dazzle our mental vision with virtue's radiance every animal for instance the horse or the dog has some supreme good quality yet at the same time they require to have health and freedom from pain similarly therefore in man that consummation you speak of attains its chief glory in what is his chief excellence namely virtue this being so i feel you do not take sufficient pains to study nature's method of procedure with the growing corn no doubt her way is to guide its development from blade to ear and then discard the blade as of no value but she does not do the same with man when she has developed in him the faculty of reason for she continually superadds fresh faculties without abandoning her previous gifts thus she added to sensation reason and after creating reason did not discard sensation suppose the art of viticulture whose function is to bring the vine with all its parts into the most thriving condition at least let us assume it to be so for we may invent an imaginary case as you are fond of doing for purposes of illustration suppose then the art of viticulture were a faculty residing in the vine itself this faculty would desire doubtless as before every condition requisite for the health of the vine but would rank itself above all the other parts of the vine and would consider itself the noblest element in the vine's organism similarly when an animal organism has acquired the faculty of sensation this faculty protects the organism it is true but also protects itself. But, when reason has been superadded, this is placed in such a position of dominance that all the primary gifts of nature are placed under its protection. Accordingly, reason never abandons its task of safeguarding the earlier elements. Its business is by controlling these to steer the whole course of life, so that I cannot sufficiently marvel at the inconsistency of your teachers. Natural desire, which they term and also duty and even virtue itself they reckon among things according to nature yet when they want to arrive at the supreme good they leap over all of these and leave us two operations instead of one some things we are to adopt others to desire instead of including both operations under a single end chapter fifteen but you protest that if other things than virtue go to make up happiness virtue cannot be established as a matter of fact it is entirely the other way about it is impossible to find a place for virtue unless all the things that she chooses and rejects are reckoned towards one sum total of good for if we entirely ignore ourselves we shall fall into the mistakes and errors of aristo forgetting the things that we assigned as the origins of virtue herself if while not ignoring these things, we yet do not reckon them in the end or chief good, we shall be well on the road towards the extravagances of Errolis, since we shall have to adopt two different rules of life at once. Errolis sets up two separate ultimate goods, which, supposing his view were true, he ought to have united in one. But, as it is, he makes them so separate as to be mutually exclusive alternatives, which is surely the extreme of perversity hence the truth is just the opposite of what you say virtue is an absolute impossibility unless it holds to the objects of the primary instincts as going to make up the sum of good for we started to look for a virtue that should protect not abandon nature whereas virtue as you conceive it protects a particular part of our nature but leaves the remainder in the lurch man's constitution itself if it could speak would declare that its earliest tentative movements of desire were aimed at preserving itself in the natural character with which it was born into the world but at that stage the principal intention of nature had not yet been fully revealed well suppose it revealed what then will it be construed otherwise than as forbidding that any part of man's nature should be ignored if man consists solely of a reasoning faculty let it be granted that the end of goods is contained in virtue alone. But if he has a body as well, the revelation of our nature, on your showing, will actually have resulted in our relinquishing the things to which we held before that revelation took place. At this rate, to live in harmony with nature means to depart from nature. There have been philosophers who, after rising from sensation to the recognition of nobler and more spiritual faculties, thereupon through the senses on one side similarly your friends starting from the instinctive desires came to behold virtue in all her beauty and forthwith flung aside all they had ever seen besides virtue herself forgetting that the whole instinct of appetition is so wide in its range that it spreads from the primary objects of desire right up to the ultimate ends and not realizing that they are undermining the very foundations of the graces which they so much admire End of chapter fifteen of book four recording in memory of mitchell edwards